Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is the musician Alexis Taylor, best known for his work with indie electronic band Hot Chip. He is also a prolific solo artist, not to mention an avid collector of clothes and designer pieces. He sat down with me to talk about Hot Chip's soon-to-be-released album, his upcoming event with the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as well as the five objects he would choose to put in the cabinet at 5 Carlos Pace. Hi Alexis Taylor. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. And um, we're at Carlos Place, Five Carlos Place, where you've been before. That's right, yeah. I was here for John Booth's House of Voltaire party that was really, really fun. You DJ'd? Yeah, I, I DJ'd and I lay on the bed that he yeah. made and <laughs> answered some questions yeah. about prince posters on my bedroom wall when i was a teenager yeah because the whole theme was like teenagers in their bedrooms and what yeah, yeah. it was a good party it was fantastic night. yeah um and the music was amazing yeah um, john john had worked with me just before then on the album cover for my last solo record beautiful thing and so i'd got to know him around that time and also my wife had bought some ceramics by him before that too so yeah it's been yeah. it was nice to be involved in that event and I spoke, because I actually spoke to John yesterday, and um, I was telling him that I was speaking to you today, and then he sent me, <laughs> he sent me a photo of Barry, you know, um, yeah. his, the hairdresser yeah. who he shares a studio with, wearing a jumpsuit that he, I think it's your jumpsuit that John had painted. Yes. Is that right? That's right. Um, and, then I, and then I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then he sent me a video of Barry sort of modelling it, like turn, doing a twirl. So yeah. I saw the back, and then the back's got a painting on is that is it you on the back? Or yeah. Just... So he did a <laughs> he did a sketch of me, then made a vase in that shape, like um, like some of the other vases he'd he'd made, with one like two versions of my face, one on the front and one on the back of the vase, and they they don't look that much like me. They look a bit more like lots of the the you know pictures he's made generally, but they were meant to be roughly in my image. Um, I had blonde hair at the time. Barry, who you were just talking about, had dyed my hair. So that's why that is how I looked on that image. Anyway, he painted it onto a jumpsuit for me to wear as stage wear. And I think Barry modelled it before it arrived, at, you know, before I collected it. Um, Barry looks a lot better in it than, than I do, but um, but it's one of my I'm favourite sure one of my um, favorite jumpsuits. <laughs> so you own many jumpsuits? I so. do, yeah. Well, actually, one of the things I could talk about are the... Um, a collection of jumpsuits I've got generally really um but also this one brand a Finnish designer called Vuoco um she has made these like been making them probably since the mid 60s I think the same sort of shape jumpsuit and often with the same kind of um prints on them but each season there'll be a different version of them and I've got quite a few of those and I wear them on stage a lot and if my bandmates in my solo project are up for it, they wear my spare ones too, and it looks quite nice as a kind of colourful unit. Um, but yeah, I do I do have quite a few jumpsuits. Oh, wow. Why the jumpsuit? Is that just a... It's not a convenience thing, presumably, because <laughs> they're quite utilitarian. They're utilitarian. Um, they can be convenient if you're, like, doing painting and decorating, I guess. I don't tend to do that in those ones because they were quite expensive and hard to find them anywhere in the world but having said that they probably would look quite nice with paint splattered on them um i think they're not they're not always that convenient a jumpsuit you know when you need to use the lavatory you suddenly find you wish you'd worn something else but i often i can never i always think when i see jumpsuits for women especially and i think some women but with buttons how inconvenient that is i think the zip just about managed but yeah I don't mind the buttons. I think that 
I'm kind of into the idea of jumpsuits and keep buying them and keep searching for the perfect one, but they're not that flattering on, on me. So <laughs> that's a bit of a weird one for me. You know, I often think, oh, I look like that in it, do I? I've mm. never met anyone who collects, who, who goes for jumpsuits. Well, um, yeah, I think my wife had one years ago around the time I first met her and I really liked that. And then maybe, maybe started off finding, you know, secondhand kind of army style or flight suits rather than anything more um, fashion based. And then somewhere along the way, I started to learn about these or saw these Vuoco ones in, in Helsinki. And um, Does she still produce them now? Or they yeah, she does. Yeah, she, I think she's in her... No, th there are vintage ones out there, but they're hard to find, but she still produces them. Her shop is still going. And, Have you met her? Yeah, I've met her. She's really amazing designer. What's her name? Vuoco Nermizniemi. Um, she used to design for Marimekko. She designed the... Yokopoika shirt, which is like the famous stripy shirt that, that's still in production now, and I think I think that was early sixties. She designed that, and then she she left Marimekko and went to do her own brand, Voco. Um, she's still running the company now. She's often in the shop, even though she's probably in her late eighties. Um, so she's very hands on, and she's been very influential as well as a designer. I think that Issey Miyake is quite open about being influenced by her. She's not that well known outside of certain circles, but if you if you're in Finland, everyone knows her, her work really. Um and it's so vibrant and playful and very simple and, and elegant as well, like everything she makes. So it's there's probably a few things that are designed to be menswear, like some shirts and jackets, but you can wear any of it really. I mean, there's oversized um sort of almost balloon-shaped dresses that my wife has quite a few of, which look amazing. I've sometimes worn those on stage with Hot Chip. Um, the jumpsuits, the trousers, the jackets, they're, they're really, they're, they're quite kind of flamboyant, but they're also, um, the shape of them is quite utilitarian or or um, pleasing. And, and yeah, I think anyone who's kind of into nice clothing would, would be quite into them really and your your wife does she collect things as well yes she does um she used to collect to sell at a market stall in the stables market in camden years ago um so she had a kind of physical space to display all of those things she she collected um and now she just sells online but we both still buy things she goes to car boot sales and flea markets pretty much every weekend and if we travel for my music she if she's there with me she'll find out where you know go to the rose rose bowl flea in california or go to the regular like daily market in brussels or whatever that's kind of her passion basically and i'm a bit of a collector as well um probably more of records and musical equipment and clothing than than anything else but a, a few other bits and pieces too so what's the next thing that we're going to put into the special cabinet in the attic here? Well, um, something I would put in there is these small rubber rings which are used as stoppers on bottles. So um, a Grolsch beer bottle, glass beer bottle often has this, I don't know what the name of that mechanism is, where you kind of have a, a, a clasp and um, you can shut the shut the bottle tightly with that clasp but there's a red or white or green kind of uh, rubber ring that's part of that and i found out years ago and lots of people in in the music will probably know it too that they help to keep your guitar strap on your guitar if you put one of those red rubber rings around um the two fastening points on an electric guitar or an acoustic guitar and Without them, the guitar tends to fall off whenever I'm playing it. So you might be playing a gig in front of 100 people or 1,000 people, whatever it is. But if the guitar falls off, it's pretty annoying and embarrassing. And that's definitely happened to me so, more but... than once. <laughs> so then I started to use these red sort of rubber stoppers, and it never, ever happens with them. So I, I then 
remember borrowing a guitar for a gig in New York and I borrowed this amazing guitar from my friend Johnny Lamb and it looked really good and it sounded good but it still fell off because I didn't have one of those with me. Um, I also remember seeing Scritti Politti play at the Roundhouse and I'm quite good friends with Green from that band and I watched him start the whole set and the same thing happened to him. And I was sat there thinking, <laughs> I've got like loads of those red rubber things. Now, by that point, I started traveling with them. I had so them, you just put them like, they're, they're always them in my like, jean pocket <laughs> or in my wallet. So I wanted to like lob one at him. Yeah. I just think they're really useful. And um, I, yeah. We need to find out what they're called, don't we? <laughs> just, probably <laughs> just called. Um, I'm sure they've got yeah. a name for it in the Grolsch factory. Yes. So if yeah. Grolsch people are listening. I'll have to get in touch. It wouldn't. I guess it wouldn't be necessary to be sponsored because yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can just steal them every time I. So do, do and presumably guitar manufacturers make special the, the equivalent specific, thing. Yeah, they seem to make something which you have to to like screw onto your guitar, okay. and then you've like screwed a so hole in your same. guitar. So I d somebody did that for me on this old Gibson Firebird guitar of mine, and after they'd done it, I thought it's quite hard to get that off fit again and also it's just kind of damaged the guitar permanently so it's easier to use these these things which I, I find it funny that they didn't get designed with that purpose in mind and yet they're so perfect for, for I wonder who first discovered that they're good for that yeah um, I, who I, told you about it I think my friend John Coxon guitar player um, from Spiritualized and a few other bands I think he might have told me about it but Everyone seems to know, really. <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah. Um, and they so won't take up too much space in yeah. your cabinet as well. I know, it's kind of brilliant. Um, I think we should have a few in there, do you think? Or just yeah, one? yeah, one definitely a have a few. Because do you think it needs to be on a Grosch bottle in the cabinet? No, I'll, I'll give you a selection. Text. I'll okay. give you like a... Oh, right, you're going to give us some. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, and I'll come, I'll come blaming you and my guitar <laughs> strap <laughs> yeah. falls Um. How's it all going with all your... What are you up to in terms of your profession at the moment? Um, right now, I've been working on a new Hot Chip album, which um, we're pretty near to finishing. Um, and been doing that in Paris at a studio we'd never been to before called Motorbase Studio, which is run by Philippe Zadar, who's a fantastic... French producer who's worked with Beastie Boys, Phoenix, Cat Power. Um, he he is in his own project called Cassius, that, that are quite a big electronic group. So we've been working there, which was great, and we'd never worked with a producer before on an, on any Hot Chip album. I mean, we had worked with somebody called Mark Ralph, who's a fantastic producer, but when we worked with him, he was we were kind of asking him to just record us, and we were still thinking of ourselves as the producers. So we worked with Philippe on this new one and also with another producer called Roddy McDonald who has worked with the XX and Sampha and David Byrne and we worked with him at the beginning of that process of making the album and with Philippe Zadar at the end and we did a lot on our own in the middle period. So yeah we're just kind of we're just completing all of that work and hoping that it will come out in the summer. Um, and then what happens? You take it on tour, or yeah, we'll be we'll be announcing shows pretty soon. I guess we'll, if it's summer, it's when it's festival time. And yeah, that. we'll be playing the ones that are announced. There's one called All Points East, which is quite new in London, and I played that solo last year, and I was wearing that that John Booth jumpsuit for that <laughs> show in boiling hot weather. I'm always going to look out for you in boiler suits now. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm not wearing them, it'll be a disappointment. Um, uh, yeah, we're doing that, and we'll be at, I think we'll be at some in, uh, one in one in Somerset, maybe. Um, and so UK-based. Yeah, and yeah. Portugal. And, but basically, not UK. basically none of them have been announced except for Is All it, Points um, East and NOS Alive. Is it... Um, a whole new is it, is it a departure sound wise or is it similar um, vibes? It's it's it feels different to us because of the input from these two producers. Um, 
elements of it feel very kind of emblematic of what Hot Chip has always been about, kind of, you know, electro-pop, quite upbeat dance music. But then there are, I feel like there are things going on with the production that make it a little bit wilder in places and um, the mixing is a bit more extreme. So certain instruments leap out in the mix more than they've ever done before, I think. And um, I think in a strange way, it's got a little bit of an influence from the kind of French electronic sound, which is probably just down to being in Paris. How do you like Paris? I really like it. Yeah, it was it was great going there to do this album. Um, I think it's quite good for a band to go away from where they live and um, be very focused. Even though we were in a fun place in Paris, we were working till usually midnight or one or two in the studio every day. So you're kind of, you've gone there just to make a record. You haven't gone there for some other reason and you don't come home to normality. You don't come home to taking your kid to school or whatever. So you're just focused on making the record as good as it can be. And I think that in itself is very important but also being in Paris it was just a I find it a very beautiful city to to walk around and there's friends there and um is there still a what's the music scene like there now because obviously there was that whole yeah electronic thing well I don't know that much about the the kind of scene right now I mean I I've worked a bit with some people who have been quite established there for a while like I worked with Nico Godin from Air recently and um, we've been doing some DJ sets with Piluski, who's a very like kind of well-known French DJ. But these are people who are more like our age or older, and I don't know so much about the younger French scene. Um, it feels to me, and maybe maybe Parisians listening would be you know a bit more knowledgeable than me, but it feels like people are still quite um, proud of that that big period of, of, of music and um, it's still influential on, on younger generations from what I can tell. But while we were there, yeah, we didn't we didn't really, other than DJing with Jarvis, Cocker and, and Peluski one night, we didn't really see much so, of the like night nightlife, yeah. yeah. Jarvis Cocker lives there part of the year sometimes. I all, think all so, time, doesn't he? yeah. I think and are you doing something else? With him because you've got some night coming up that you were talking yeah, about th- before this, we started recording. This, this week I'm DJing with him at a, a new branch of a space called Spiritland in London. So they opened their first one in Granary Square in King's Cross. Spiritland is a kind of um, a bar and venue that has put a lot of effort into having a wonderful sound system and bespoke mixer and and amazing turntables for people to use and trying to I guess offer people the opportunity to go somewhere where even if they might have a cocktail or have some dinner they get to hear some music through lovely speakers and sometimes they'll do special events which are just just you know an album playback or something and other times they move the seating out and turn it into more of a kind of dance space um, but it's trying not to be a club that competes with like Fabric or, you know, those kind of places. It's a bit different from that. So I'm I'm playing with Jarvis at a new new version that they've just set up in the Royal Festival Hall. Um and it's the kind of launch launch night for that. Um Is it open to the public? The place is open to the public. I don't know if the launch event is or not. Mm. I can't really tell. I think maybe it was and it's sold out or something. <laughs> what have you worked with Jarvis a lot before? No, like, um, is that a new thing? I haven't really worked with him, but we got to know him because that DJ called Piluski, based in Paris, that I mentioned, is good friends with him, and so we we talked about doing a, um, some DJing with him at some point while we were in Paris. Um, it was going to include Baxter Jury as well. I think he's going to be involved in some other future events. Um, he did a thing here, I think, recently. He did a did he? musical oh, did matches. He perform? Yeah, he did yeah. A, a performance here. Yeah, I opened for him with my solo music on, on his recent UK oh, tour. Right. And that was really good fun. Um, so Jarvis, we went out for a meal with him with, with 
Cedric Peluski and 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 his partner Julie, and then got to know him a little bit, and he was just really really funny, and and uh, I'd met him maybe once before, but I didn't really know him. Um, I'd met him before in in Jamaica in in an airport where they have a, a record shop. Um, no way. And that was just <laughs> such a funny thing that that this. You know that you could buy records, seven-inch reggae records, in the airport, and so I just. When went, was this? This was, this was about ten, no, eight years ago or something, and he was the only other person in in that shop in the airport. So I got to chat to him there. We had been on the same festival. Um, there was a thing that Coachella Festival was doing called the Coachella Cruise. Um, they only did it once. I guess it didn't do that well, but it was a cruise ship festival. <laughs> um, it predates the fire festival. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds a bit like that. Yeah, well, everyone managed to get on the boat and <laughs> people seemed to have a really good time. Yeah. Um, Pulp were playing, Hot Chip were playing. Uh, I think, who else was on? Um, loads of, yeah, DJ Harvey and uh, it was it was really fun. So I met him around that, <laughs> around that time. But, yeah, just DJing with him is quite a new thing. It's not like I... Yeah. I still don't know him all that well. Mm. I'm going to play back to back with him tomorrow at Spiritland, and we've not really done that before, so it should be quite fun. Um, what else is getting into the cabinet? Well, I wanted to put in some hot sauce made by my friend Fimba Bravo. Now, I don't know what the shelf life is of, of that hot sauce, and it probably is best refrigerated. Do you think? Does that hot sauce is... You well, it's, can stay out of the fridge. Yeah, I? that's a good point. But this one is just fresh and doesn't have any preservatives of any kind. Ah. So I think it would it would be good if it was in there for some amount of time, just as a symbol of how much. Could we put I an like. empty yeah bottle without the sauce? Maybe. maybe yeah. Ah. I mean, he just recycles jam jars and things, so it oh, might. Right. Might, so is it, where does he? He sell doesn't it? sell it. He just gives it to people that oh, right. that he's friends with. But it is really really delicious and I, I suppose when I when I met him I should explain who he is he's a steel pan player who has made music since probably what's his surname it's Finbar Bravo um, he's been making music originally he was in the 20th century steel band um, that was sampled by Jennifer Lopez on one of her big hits and he was then in a group called Steel and Skin who are really good late 70s um, steel band playing kind of funky reggae influenced and, and Caribbean music. Um, he's also made solo music. I've played with him live a lot of times. So I was the keyboard player in his live band. Um, he played on the Hot Chip album One Life Stand. I got really interested in steel pans around that time. I was listening to lots of older records featuring steel pan as well as listening to newer things like a few years before that there was that 50 cent track called PIMP which had a steel pan sample it's oh, like the yeah. main hook in it there were some Harry Nielsen records I liked with steel pan on them there was a Van Dyke Parks one there were various Trinidadian ones that I liked um, and we were cut we were Hot Chip were covering Joy Division Transmission and whenever we do a cover, I always want us to do it in a quite different way from how the original sounds. So I suggested that we get a steel pan on that track. Didn't know if that would work or not, and it seemed to work great. And that was that was Bravo, Fimba Bravo, who came down and just played on it. So I met him at that point, and then he played on the, the next Hot Chip record, and he played live with us a bit, and he had such an influence on what we were doing that Al from the band learnt the steel pan and bought one and, start, and has had it in the band ever since. Part of my friendship with Bravo and making music with him tends to involve him every time he sees me giving me a, a fresh jar of hot sauce that he makes. And they always taste quite different because it depends on the strength of the the um, scotch bonnet. Is it a red pepper. sauce? Yeah, it, well, it, it usually is, yeah. Um, I think it has a lot of fresh mango and lime in it and um tomato and is it more of a garnish or is it more like you know a pasta sauce no it's more of a garnish it's 
more like a hot pepper sauce you'd have with Jamaican food. Um, but when he first gave it to me, we would use it as a marinade as well. And it's, it's quite addictive because it's so flavoursome and it's not the kind of heat that means you just can't carry on eating. It's just a really, like, really rich flavour and really goes with, you know, it goes with, like, a Caribbean meal. It goes with some of my birthdays over the years if they've been in the pub and he's delivered the hot sauce I'll just have chips <laughs> with it and it's, it's amazing it's like a good condiment for for anything and everyone I know who knows him wants to be on that kind of hot sauce list from Bravo they want they're like how do you get how do you get to get the hot sauce and it's just if he likes you wow. or works with you and he, he's always delivering it so he hasn't thought of like putting it into production or anything no he's a bit resistant to that idea mm. I think that he just wants it to be a you know he makes it for himself and when he's making it he wants to share it with with friends and loved ones so it's kind of i think it takes the the fun out of it for him if you try and put a, a kind of yeah. price on it but every time i have it i think he should sell it because it's so nice that it'd be nice for more people to <laughs> have it i i think he a while ago i was saying you should have it on the merch stand so you do the gig yeah. <laughs> and you've got records and cds for sale and you've got a few jars of that and people would just absolutely is it labeled it. Is, it got an, is it just called Finbar's he hot ju- sauce he just is says that? pepper sauce or pepper hot sauce. sauce and it doesn't he doesn't put packaging on it he just you know he just puts it in an old jam <laughs> jar get John to do a John Booth to do a, a label design a yeah, label for that, it maybe. that would be nice I, I mean if Bravo was up for it then yeah. it would definitely be popular um, so do you travel a lot yes you must have to for because I was just with the um, album. Does it fill you with excitement that's coming out, or do you, is it sort of slight um, um, apprehension at the, at the thought of having to travel a lot for work? Well, I always find the travelling really fun. Um, the downside of it is being away from my family. But I, what I did to get round that at the beginning was um, when my daughter was quite young. How old is she now? She's now nine. Mm. But the first few years of her life, she would just come with us on tour. Yeah, that's the thing, before they go to school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before before school kicks in and there's a real routine. Um, I mean, obviously, you can have a routine. She can go to bed at half past seven every night. But with us, that didn't happen. We just brought her on tour. I think my bandmates were very welcoming of that. And maybe it wasn't always the easiest thing, having like... An extra. Were you the only one with the yeah, kids? Yeah. At that point, yeah. Now Joe has two children, but um, it meant that as a family we weren't separate from each other. And also, my wife is a big fan of Hot Chip and knew about Hot Chip before she knew me. Um, I met her through a friend in the music world, and she is interested in going to see the gigs. So it's not like she's just there because she kind of has to go along or something and then prudence our daughter i think i think she gained quite a lot by being around this group of friends of mine and seeing what it's like to travel you know she went she went to hong kong when she was maybe eight months or something and then since then when that went okay we thought she can probably go other places too so She's she's had a really different experience from me as a child. You know, I'd been to Cornwall every year on holiday, and once we went to America by. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Chiswick in London, but Prudence has been to like thirty countries, and she's nine, and that's pretty wet, weird. But she seemed to kind of deal with it quite well, and also maybe makes her have a good, interesting life experience. I mean, I, I don't know. She's too young. She's too young. Oh, she's nine. She's nine. Yeah. yeah. And she also just was around music a lot. So when when we needed an extra person to play percussion on stage at a festival, she was kind of confident enough to want to do that and, and enjoyed it. And I feel like at that stage when they're quite young, it's, it's helpful for children to sometimes know what it is that their parents do and not just be like, oh, dad's at work now, that's separate. I mean, I'm not talking about how everyone should live their lives. It might not work for yeah, some no, people. Yeah, no, I've but... heard that. In fact, I don't, that just reminds me, I read once, I read an interview with Anna Winter, the editor of American Vogue, and she said something like that. She was like, um, I think an interviewer asked her about what it was like being a high-powered businesswoman in the 80s and having two small children, and she said that she brought them to work regularly because she thought it was important that they saw 
her life didn't end once they were she was out of their yeah. environment. Yeah. And I thought that was quite quite a good idea. Yeah, it feels so to me. I mean, it probably just is how it's turned out. And now that we've been doing that that way for a number of years, it, it just is how it is. But um, the decision for it was just in order to, to kind of come back to your original question, which is like, how, how much do I look forward to going on tour? I really like it. And I find it easier if if it's not a complete like separation from the rest of what I do. So if I'd gone away on tour and missed Prudence's like stages, developmental stages she was going through because I was singing songs every night, it would just feel a bit of a shame. But when when you're passionate about music and you're passionate about being, you know, close to your family, then it's nice if those two things can link together and in the really kind of simple way I was mentioning, it's nice that she actually was interested in playing or watching sound checks and giving us advice about what we should do differently and you know that's so cool um what right what else have we got what other objects we're talking about um i'd like to talk about some shoes that i find so comfortable and i really like the look of that i've kind of just lived in them for the last probably 15 years or so those are um, red wing boots and they it's a version of them called the, the chucker um, I, I bought them in a shop in Paris years ago a particular like suede sandy suede coloured version of them and I just think they kind of look better than any other shoe so I really like them for that reason but also I can't wear any other shoe without regretting it because I just know how comfortable they are and I talk about them all the time because I'm kind of boring um but they're just really they're really well designed they look great to me they're very durable can you wear them all year round yeah I and that's you not, go? people say oh but are they not hot and I'm no I've worn them in Australia in the summer I've worn them everywhere and there's never a more comfortable shoe for my foot so um I've bought them Again and again, I started buying different colours of them, but that original one is the, the best looking one, the sort of sandy coloured one. That's suede. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't make them anymore. They they they, they don't make the suede. They ones don't make anymore. that one. No. I'm kidding. Three one four two. Um, I didn't know them by code name until quite recently. <laughs> when and you then, tried to buy another pair. I was like, pair. what's going on? I thought, what do you mean you just changed? So they've changed the laces. They've they the shape of them is just doesn't seem to be quite the same as it used to be, and they don't make them in oh, that that's scandalous. That Did you um, write and ask if they bring them out again? I, I might use this podcast to try yes. and bring it to their attention, but I bought up like the last pair I could find online, and it's just, I've still got it waiting for me to, to un, unbox um, and wear when I when I really run out of Yeah, don't shoe <laughs> companies do that thing where they withhold certain models for Maybe. a time to increase their value? Maybe. Maybe so, they'll come out again. Yeah. So the... The thing that's a bit problematic for me about how much I like them is that they're made of suede. So I'm not vegan, but I think I think there's, it's not great really to make shoes out of animals. And so <laughs> recently I've just become really obsessed with the idea that maybe I can make one that looks like that, that isn't made right. of that material. Um, that would be yes. nice. To make something that comfortable that looks the that's way... That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Not out of level. What? So do you never? Are you vegan? No, I'm not. But I'm just more aware of yeah. those. I'm vegetarian. I'm not vegan, but I'm, I'm more aware of those issues, as I guess most people are. And it, once you start to engage with it, it's a bit harder to. Have just... you ever um, worked on a design of a of a piece of clothing or a, sh a shoe? I haven't. I haven't done that. I would like to. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite interested in clothing, as you can probably tell. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think that that would be something I'd really enjoy, and I've begun to think about it more recently. Um, you know, maybe doing a course in like shoemaking or something. But I guess most of the time, it does probably involve leather. It's a sort of it's a durable, breathable product that's really mm. been used for a long time because it's because yeah. of how how well it works as a shoe. But that, you know, I guess I'm just beginning to think of alternative ways to do it yeah there are loads of interesting things happening around eco um sustainability um on adidas brought out some shoes with um that are made from 
discarded nets from fishermen in right. the sea and there's lots of interesting things around recyc- recycled yeah. fabrics and yeah. stuff happening I'm, at the moment. I'm sure that there are. I mean, one of my bandmates, Susumu, is, he's vegan and he doesn't wear anything suede or leather anymore since becoming vegan and he's, you know, there's plenty of things he can mm. he can wear. Um, maybe I'm just a bit of a sucker for things being actually really comfortable as well as looking exactly how I want them to look. But I think than... that's, I don't think that's a lot to ask for. I think that's what you want from yeah. <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, maybe Red Wing should think um, about making a vegan shoe. Yeah, that would, be, that would be the ideal, really. That's the ideal solution here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what's this thing you're doing at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York? Yeah, that is something where um, I'm going to play at the Cloisters, which is which is part of the Met, but it's not on there. It's not at the Met Museum site. It's a bit further up Manhattan. Um, there's a chapel within the Met Cloisters, um, which is a very kind of beautiful space to to stand in and to look at the look at the building itself. And sometimes they have exhibitions in there. And after playing a solo piano show at Le Poisson Rouge in New York a few years ago. I think somebody from the Met saw that show. Um, They came along with this guy, Matt Connors, who's um, a a really good artist based in New York. And Matt put me in touch with the Met and the Met wanted me to sort of consider doing a gig in one of their spaces. And so I went to look at the Met itself and looked at all of the different rooms that they, that you could possibly do a gig in there. And then then I had this kind of nice journey on my own up to the Cloisters, which is quite far up Manhattan. You know, it's like a good hour and 20 minutes away from where, where you know, most stuff goes on in, in the kind of central part um, of Manhattan. And you walk through a really beautiful park to get to it. And when I got there on my own and walked into the building, I just thought it really had much more of an impact on me than any of the other places I'd been to, as amazing as all of those other spaces within the Met are. Um, I just thought it would suit the kind of music I wanted to to do. So I I was planning to do some quite quiet piano music, but but then work with a few extra musicians too um, to make it a bit different from, from the piano album I put out a few years ago. Because um, that that record was literally just piano and voice, and for this I wanted to work with a steel guitar, like pedal steel guitar player, and um, with a vibraphone player, and also with a guy called Money Mark, who was the keyboard player in the Beastie Boys and made lots of records that I really like on his own as well. He's designed a new instrument called the Echolodeon, which um, basically is a way of linking up a synthesizer to a old-fashioned like player piano so those pianos that would play themselves from a piano like scroll of music um it still it still uses that mechanism but you don't have to have a player piano you can have a synthesizer or anything with midi to be the the um instrument making sound so i'd been talking to him about that and he was demonstrating it to me at his his uh, studio in Los Angeles. Um, what he's interested in is the idea that the original sheet music that was used in those uh, player pianos was sometimes actually taken from a performance by a real composer. So Debussy played one of his pieces on the piano. Somebody turned that into the information that you put into the player piano. Then the player piano plays that. And then Mark's taking it a stage further and saying, what if you could hear Debussy played on a Moog synthesizer? But it's actually Debussy who did it. So that's his thing that he's interested in. And what I wanted to do is see if we could come up with something together based around my songs at the piano, but where we feature that Echolodeon instrument. And when I walked when I walked around the chapel in the cloisters, I was thinking about this film I really like by Pasolini, an Italian director, um, where he used some brilliant gospel music. He used this piece by Odetta. Which film? Uh, it's called The Gospel According to Matthew. 
um, it's a kind of religious film made by a non-religious Marxist person and it's a very powerful film I find and I've been quite fascinated by its mu the use of music in it really as well as how it works with the with the film but being being not religious myself but being in a kind of well the cloisters chapel is a kind of pretend chapel because it's kind of mock-up or like remake of of something European that they put put there in New York um I was just thinking about how I how I'm quite influenced by gospel music and religious sort of um imagery in some music that I like and I've covered things like crying in the chapel before and um some of my own music I feel like it's kind of almost like the, the solo stuff almost secular gospel music um in a, in a way and I wanted to just do something relating to that so whilst I was there I was thinking about this Pasolini film and I was thinking about this Odetta music where she's singing sometimes I feel like a motherless child which is this you know um kind of negro spiritual I suppose it would have been called originally what I'm going to try and do with Money Mark is take that Odetta recording turn it into MIDI information and then get it to be played by his echolodeon and then do that in that space because to me that feels more interesting than me trying to just cover her song and reference all the things I was thinking about to do with that Pasolini film I just don't think I could do it justice to to just sit there at a piano and sing that song but I want to do something else with it and and I'll be playing other songs in the set so that's a really long answer to yeah, your question no, but <laughs> really interesting and Nick Ralph the art is an artist yeah. that you seem to do lots of different things with yeah so Nick Ralph is the person I asked to work with me on the visual side of that gig yeah um because it's you know a, a, an event with the Met which is a kind of visual arts gallery I thought it would be nice to do something I've never done before which is work closely with a visual artist I like um, to see what they can bring to to the collaboration um, and I guess what bands often do is they have a video screen maybe um, we might still do something involving that but I wanted to see if Nick would think in a slightly more maybe even a kind of theatrical way about the staging of of that show um, and Nick is, yeah, Nick is an artist who I know personally and have bought a work by him years ago that I really love. And I then used that as an album or an EP cover. And then after that, he did two Hot Chip covers for our record sleeves and made the artwork for lots of uh, singles from those albums too. Um, he helped us come up with the concept of a an album cover that could be unique for every single copy which we thought would never be possible and he 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 found a way to do that and we did that for the last hot chip record so i think he's very you know very bright person to work with and i just love i love the way he thinks about things that was really cool that idea yeah had anyone has anyone else ever done that not that i know of i mean you can do it in a really old school way of like screen printing every cover or painting like sun ra used to Sun Ra and his like orchestra would make a different cover for each each copy and hand them to the people buying them at the gigs. But what we did with Nick Ralph was he came up with some some kind of like front cover design that was some interlocking shapes that he then worked out could be that the the way in which those shapes interact with each other could change and an algorithm could be used to make them randomly change. And then the background colours, we didn't have an infinite number of colours. We, we chose maybe 30 or something. And I based all of those colours on these 1960s sweatshirts with like Peanuts characters on them that I'd been collecting. Yeah, what's with the Peanuts? I, I keep, I, you're wearing a Peanuts sweatshirt now. Yeah, uh, just I just really like how they look and like them kind of more Are they than... collector's items? They are, yeah. Um, I don't know if you know Kim Jones, who do, he's now at Dior and was at Louis Vuitton before, but he's got like a massive collection of them and um, he's he's lent his collection to the Somerset House exhibition about peanuts at the moment. Um, I also collect them and every time I'm 
in America or in Japan. I look out for them because those are the places they tend to come up. Um, we did a range with this company called TSPTR um, where we remade some Peanuts merch but with hot chip lyrics and that was another kind of nod to that that fascination of mine with the hot chip album artwork it was just the colors that i liked we weren't trying to say anything more to do with peanuts but we because i'd spent so long looking at this sort of array of pastel colored sweatshirts and i have them all at home i just kind of guess i was thinking how aesthetically pleasing they are and then it then it was really aesthetically pleasing to see the records come out um where they just all look so kind of great together if you see like seven and they're all different but but they're based on that color scheme i just yeah there wasn't much more thinking behind it than that will look nice <laughs> that's that's enough i think um what um what else have we got um um well i'd like to talk about this um Eero Anio Pastilli chair which is um it's like a, a, a sort of low plastic chair that's um, got a kind of circular but not spherical shape. It's kind of like a squashed sphere and um, it, it kind of rolls like a rocking What's chair. What's it made? I think, made I think it's like a um, hard plastic. Do you own one? Yeah, I've got two of them. I've got two very old... Like they're from the they're from the late sixties, I think, and my ones are quite knackered and um, scratched and you know chipped, but I still really like them. They actually they actually look a bit like the colours I was just talking about. Like there's a sort of pinkish one and a and a yellow one, and they're kind of faded from from um, sunlight. Um, is he still alive, Eero Arneo? I don't know if he is actually still alive. Um, he's He's a famous Finnish designer who's made lots of other kind of iconic bits of furniture. There's like a ball, a ball chair, which is like it hangs from the ceiling and is a sort of sphere that you sit in. Um, quite kind of 70s space age looking things. Um, and yeah, the, I, I think I just came across these chairs at the Helsinki Design Museum and when I sat in one I loved how comfortable it was to sit in it and how kind of playful it is how simple it is as a design it's essentially just a circular chair with a sort of space cut out in it for you to sit in it it's a rocking chair as well as being a bit like a kind of sofa you could sit on or something you, you could have it like upholstered in, in the middle of it if you wanted and I think people have done that um, I guess I like things that you know certain designers like that other Finnish designer I was talking about Voko name is Niemi they make things that feel like they've really reduced all of the um, design information to be like the bare essentials and then it's still very bold and very kind of unique looking and I feel like that's kind of what maybe what I'm drawn to with these chairs um, well they're quite I think they're quite hard to find now quite expensive if you want to buy a newly made one and I just luckily came across a couple in Bristol and what in a second hand yeah um from a sort of like an antiques shop I suppose um I was out in Bristol I, the last record I made with the John Booth cover I made it a lot of it in Bristol with this producer called Tim Goldsworthy who used to be part of DFA and before that, Uncle Mowax. Um, I was going to Bristol a lot to work on that record, and the friend of mine who I would stay with in Bristol would take me out after like each each studio session would end. He would take me out and would have a go to like a reggae club or go and have a drink in a pub or something and just have a bit of an evening out. And I I was out with a group of his friends, and I I lost this. Um, Somebody stole my like supreme Comme de Garçon sweatshirt that I'd taken off. So I was really annoyed. But at the same time, one of the people who I was there with that I was chatting to happened to be the seller of, of the owner of these pastilli chairs. 
but I didn't know that on the day that I was talking to him. I just, he just was there, and the next day I was like, I was looking for them online. I saw they were in Bristol, and I said to my friend who lives there, "Is there any way you could help, like, collect them from the shop, and then I'll come and get them?" And he was like, "Well, that's my friend's shop. That's the guy <laughs> you were talking to last night in the pub." So, well, sounds it was, very serendipitous. Yeah, circular, maybe yeah. like the chairs. Um, yeah. I was doing a, like, a few photographs recently with my friend Guy Bolanjaro, who's just like really good photographer, and I wanted to to like sit in one of those chairs and sit in the garden at my house. And the best pictures he really got using that were like me kind of wheeling it through the house because it's you've got this big plastic circular chair and you don't really know how to pick it up. It's a bit too big to lift it, but then you realise the design is so good that you can just roll it along the ground like a wheel. Um, so yeah probably talked about that enough but it will look <laughs> amazing it'll look amazing if you could get one into the into the um cabinet here yeah it doesn't sound like it's gonna fit i think i've i've probably must... got like a um a small like model of it or something yeah that maybe you could or maybe uh, the photo of you yeah that your friend took yeah that's a good maybe, idea if yeah. it's not being published somewhere else first um that could work okay and then there was um Tell me about the voice-a-graph booth okay, yeah. <laughs> that you wanted to put in the cabinet. Talking about things that probably wouldn't fit. I reckon the voice-a-graph booth may be about the same size as the cabinet. I haven't. I need to look at the cabinet. But um, the voice-a-graph booth is something I came across in the last four years, I suppose. Um, it was. It's the size of a photo booth. And they made them in America in the mid-40s, I believe. And... They were a way for people to go into a small recording booth, literally the size of a photo booth, and speak into a microphone and record a message and send it via mail on a record. So maybe if somebody was, um, you know, in the war or something like that, and they were away, you could send them an au like an audio letter by recording a couple of minutes of audio into a microphone the voice graph booth then cuts a a record straight away after you've done your recording and like spits it out a bit like a photograph comes out of a photo booth dispenser. So that's what they were used for originally. I think people also sang songs or did whatever they wanted on them. And a few people have started to like find these old voice graph booths and, and fix them up and make them functional again. Have um, you used one? Yeah, so uh, Fonica Records in Soho had one temporarily in their shop for, for two weeks, about four years ago, and it was somebody who runs a whiskey brand called Abelor, I think it's called. He had he had basically done all of the work of it, like getting it to work again, and then he just wanted anyone to get to use it, so he shipped it from America, I think, to Fonica Records. There was no charge for anyone to use it. You just had to go into Fonica and wait your turn to go in. And you had three minutes to record something and one attempt at doing it or what, something like that. And then you just get your, your little <laughs> physical performance of, you know, document of your record straight you away got... afterwards. So I, I found out about it on like the last day that it was at Fonica. And I said, oh, is there any way I could book in a slot to, to to record something and they said yeah it's going to be packed down at like 8 p.m can you come in at seven so i came in and i i had a new song that I hadn't recorded yet and i went in with an acoustic guitar and i hadn't played the acoustic guitar for maybe 20 years or something but it was the only thing i could think of to fit into the booth and i recorded it and i was just really amazed by how it sounded so it sounds like you're transported back to an era of kind of early recordings, I suppose. So blues music and things are what you think of. It sounds a bit scratchy and warbly. It doesn't, it's not perfect sounding. Um, it's a bit like a low quality way of making a record. And all of those imperfections I find quite fascinating, not for the sake of them, but actually it just adds a really odd quality to the, to the music. So there's voice and guitar on that track I recorded, but it's my voice sounds a bit unlike me because it's slightly 
pitched up because the, the, I guess it's going around a bit faster than it should. Um, I think it's probably my favourite piece of music I've ever recorded, and Have it's hard to like, it? it's hard to do anything like that again. Um, I released it as a bonus six-inch record that came with the piano album. So the the piano album was voice and piano all the way through. And then when you get that record out, you've got like a su suddenly like this different sound, of guitar and vocal, but very otherworldly sounding. Um, so I gave it away with that record with the limited edition of, of that. And it's also, it's online with the, with the piano record. Um, recently, I was in Nashville and I knew that Jack White had one of these machines as well at Third Man Records. So he's got Third Man Records as a recording studio, but he's also got a shop and it's the same nice principle that like anyone can use the Voicegraph booth. I think you have to pay $20 to use it. Um, so I went first thing in the morning, like the night I landed on the Thursday and on the Friday morning I went in and recorded a new couple of ideas onto Voicegraph discs in there. And this time around I thought I won't bring an instrument, I'll just do it a cappella and then I can make the music around that vocal and it can be like any, anything that, that is the kind of musical context for it, but the vocal will have this strange crackly quality to it. So um, I just really, I really like the, the sort of physicality of it. And, um, you know, the fact that a little product comes out afterwards and also it's unique. Each, each time you do it, the machine will work slightly differently. It will have its own imperfections. And it just feels like uh, it's, maybe it's, not to everyone's taste, maybe it's a bit gimmicky in a way, but to me it's it's much more than that. It's really kind of, uh, it's like working with a bit of gear in the studio that brings a sound that you've never had before and you get that out of going in this little booth. It's quite a magical mm -hmm. experience. Do you think we can, in the cabinet, can we put one of the, what do you think would represent it best? Either we can put in a photo of one or Maybe like a disc. Yeah, I've got I've got a recorded. couple of spare copies of that. I could yeah. definitely so cool. given that, and that you know will sort of represent it pretty well. I think. Um, all right. And was there? And then speaking of discs, so the other sign of the times. Yeah, um, you know, uh, rather than just focusing on jumpsuits and shoes, <laughs> and which we love, <laughs> which I do love. Um, I thought it would be nice to put in one album. You know, I'd put in millions of albums if, if I could, but Sign of the Times by Prince is probably the record that I've listened to and enjoyed the most in my in my life. And um, it's pretty hard to, you know, that kind of Desert Island Discs type situation where you have to think of a shortlist. It's quite hard to think of something. What would you really think represents your favourite music when there's so much that you listen to all the time? But... With that album, I think Prince made something that is very, it's very kind of personal to him after a period of working with his band, The Revolution, and then disbanding the group and going in. And I'm sure there were collaborators on this record, but it seems like a lot of what's interesting about that record is him just going back to basics and like setting up a drum machine, making a pattern setting up a fairlight synthesizer using the sounds from that and really quickly making almost almost demo like music which is obviously amazing and you know better than anyone else's demos but the rate at which prince would record those songs from what i've read about him is like you know one song every day and he finishes he finishes that song that day and then he moves on maybe two songs a day he mixes them straight away and I think there's something about that speed of having a fantastic idea and capturing it that is really well displayed in Sign of the Times. I feel like the kind of way that Prince can be political in the title track and very personal in in that same song, or he can do a track like If I Was Your Girlfriend, which is probably my favourite song anyone's ever made, which is so peculiar sounding by having his like sped up voice and slowed down voice and his normal register voice all mixed together saying things that are obviously really intimate between him and one other person and then putting them on a record that's kind of for everyone to listen to doing 
lots of playful things with the production in terms of um, avant-garde sort of production techniques, but keeping it pretty simple at the same time. I just feel like it's, you know, that sounds like a technical reason why I like that music, but that's my way of trying to understand how great a masterpiece I think it is. In, a, in another way, it's just the music that I heard when I was seven or eight that my brother had as as the new album by Prince, and I've heard it ever since then, and I've never tired of it, and it's it's very rewarding as a as a listen, and also as a music maker, I find it's quite good when you have those kind of records that you can look up to as this is what you could really do if you if you tried hard enough, or if you were you know I'm not saying we can make a record as good as that, but it's good to know that there's a double album that's fantastic all the way through and really varied and it doesn't for me it's not a record where i wish it was a single album and why did well it's not like got anything superfluous on it it's it's kind of the best record that anyone's ever made as far as i'm concerned so yeah it'd be nice to to like put that in and and just i think lots of people like that record you know i i didn't want to pick something that is like i'm there's other favourites of mine that maybe I wouldn't want to listen to every day, but mm. at least with Sign of the Times, I know I can never really get sick of that. <laughs> That's nice. A nice place to end, unless you wanted to add anything else. Yeah, I mean, there. we don't really need to, but maybe I would just say that something that lots of people have, but obviously not everyone in the world, but lots of people have smartphones now, and whilst they can be problematic in some ways in that you know you can stop stare into the phone too much and be addicted to using it and it can take you away from being really with somebody else which i think a lot of people are aware of those downsides to it i feel like i couldn't be a you know quick to make creative decisions and come up with song ideas if i didn't have that in my pocket all the time because I use the the voice recorder app on it to capture any demo or fragment of an idea. And I, I tend to have ideas at really inopportune moments, like when I'm sleeping or something, or when I'm on a train and it's really noisy. But I still will always either wake up if it's when I'm asleep or first thing in the morning I'll capture whatever idea I've woken up with in, from, from a dream. Or if I'm traveling or on an airplane, I might use it to capture melodies and lyrics um so record into it like a dictaphone so you sing into it yeah and i do that really often and there are so many things that i've used as in i've built a song around that that idea and i wouldn't be able, i'm not good at remembering those song ideas without some kind of recording device and i think you know you could talk about a dictaphone which is like the original version of this or you could talk about like a four track i love the idea of a four track cassette recorder but I'm not using that every day what I'm using every day is the the phone in my pocket I'm using it to listen to favorite albums by other people all the time like everywhere I go I'm listening to music and I find that helpful for me to think about what what I like about music and to be moved by music and to be kind of inspired by what people have done and then I use it to write down you know, to, to use the like notes section, the notes app. I'm writing all of the lyrics that have ended up on every album of mine or every hot chip record. They're all stored in there. Every time I stand at a microphone in the studio, I've got the phone with me to guide me through what these lyric ideas are. And I don't think for a minute I'm unusual in using the phone in this way. I mean, I worked with Katy Perry and she was doing exactly the same thing. She had all of her like... Did you write a song for her? Uh, yeah, Joe, Joe and I from Hot Chip wrote a song with her so we kind of we brought something that we'd written and then we co-wrote the rest of it with Which her song was it it's called into me you see um it was on her last record mm. um and yeah i just i suppose i just wanted even if it's a bit of a mundane thing so you're to both talk there about, with your phones t writing down that yeah what lyrics and so on yeah. yeah and she would go into like a writing room with little audio recording she'd just made whilst listening so she'd listen to our track through the speakers and while she was listening to it she'd record all of her first thoughts really first melody melodic ideas then she'd go away and work with the songwriting 
lyric writer with her and they'd come back ready with really great more finished ideas and I would yeah I mean I would show her the things I'd been writing on my phone um I would record ideas in we were in a great studio but if I didn't have time to ask the engineer to set up the mics on the piano and obviously Katy Perry's like waiting over there and Joe's over there you don't always want to distract from what they want what they would like to do. so I managed to capture other new ideas just through the iPhone um I, th- I think it's it's well designed enough that you can u- get usable recordings from it now um you don't have to you don't have to go like oh well that was just a demo mm. and there's people I've worked with who've said on this album I was producing we could never better the vocal sound that that singer got from their iPhone it was just something about the way that the compression works in the in their app and also about the way that the singer was comfortable on their own sort of above the microphone in the in the in the iPhone and they never really could get that again when they put them in front of the best mic in the world so i think it's good to for me it's good to have those kind of tools accessible at all times and i'm just very glad glad of it and it was a it was a different brand of smartphone that i used before and i did all the same things so i'm not I'm not just saying it has to be Apple. Oh, it's right, more so you're about, not brand spe- well, specific on the smartphone I, question. I think the the recording app I'm using is not made by Apple. What is the recording app? It's called Voice Recorder, I think. Mm. So you can get yeah. it on any smartphone? Yeah. But it's more the idea of a, a smartphone that has the capability of doing all yeah. that. And I'm happy to put the idea of an iPhone in it. I'm not anti-Apple. I love, I love using it. I'm just saying that it's... Uh, you open to others. <laughs> it's more about the, I, the you know, yeah. that device. Than... <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you very much. Thank that you. That was very interesting. Cheers. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website. And you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag Five Carlos Place. Thanks for listening.